0: For January 23rd, 2012, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 186, Wrong Enough to Be Human. The Overthinking a podcast where we subject the popular Culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't Deserve from Los Angeles I am Matt Rather I'm here with the panel uh, To talk about all manner Of things to talk about haywire to talk about Digital music to talk about I don't know uh, What are we going to talk about um, I you know uh, One thing that we're not going to talk about Except for in the question is uh, probably Underworld awakening or We <laughs> like to call it underworld Oblivion or underworld no. Domination no, I- <laughs> Well, I believe we agree on
1: awakening, right? Like before the podcast, right?
0: So, uh, Underworld Abomination is uh, <laughs> the Forkwell, is um, is opening, and that means uh, uh, Kate Beckinsale has two movies in the top five this past weekend uh, by box office: Underworld Awakening and Contraband. Um, did anyone go see Contraband? Yeah, that's what I thought. So let's um <laughs> let's uh let's pick a favorite uh, Kate Beckinsale movie, you know? Uh mm-hmm. and starting us off, Pete Fenzel.
1: Well, thanks very much, Matt. It is worth noting that this is Kate Beckinsale's fourth movie in which vampires fight werewolves. Though she was not in all four underworld movies, she was in the Hugh Jackman movie wait, wait, Van Helsing. This
0: is the Twilight this is like Twilight part 4 where the vampires are fighting the werewolves.
1: Uh well, they all the movies are always about the vampires fighting the werewolves. Although that's just sort of like a, a thing that's uh, that's part of the universe. I don't know exactly what the topic of this one is. It looks like she's put in sleep or something and wakes up in a dystopian future. But basically, she's a, va- she's a vampire assassin who hunts werewolves. And then it turns out that the werewolves are this, like, proletarian underclass, and that the vampires are this, like, oppressive regime, and she, her loyalties are tested. And that's the subject of the first Underworld movie, and Underworld Evolution is about uh, the sort of blood crossing in combination, and then, like, the next generation of vampire-werewolf hy- hybrids, and then facing down their mutual enemies. Um, <laughs> Bill Nye is, is in the first Underworld. Anyway, I love Underworld. I love the Underworld movies, but wait, wait, I will Bill, give some. Bill Nye what? the
0: science guy. No, 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 no. Bill,
1: Nye, Bill Nye the uh, Bill Nye the Love Actually British rocker.
0: The uh, oh, I, I don't see. know how. He...
1: Yeah, he he plays uh, Victor in yeah. the Underworld movies, the and he's the just
0: te- the guy with the tentacles coming out of his face. What at times? Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I guess that must happen later on in the series. Um, and then the third one has someone from Boston Legal in it at random, but it's supposedly really good. It doesn't have Kate Beckett's fill in it. Anyway, I'm a big proponent of the Underworld movies, but I will leave them open for someone to pick in case they can't pick something better. And I will say that my favorite Kate Beckett's sale movie of well, all time. I
0: don't even
1: know what it is. I'm, I'm you, gonna, you're going to guess? Do you want to guess?
0: I'm going to type something into – Pete, don't look at the chat. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to type something into the chat and now say what it is
1: uh serendipity with john no i was wrong (laughs) you (laughs) thought it was van helsing right (laughs) that's what i thought (laughs) no gosh no 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 serendipity is not only my favorite k beckett's movie but probably my favorite movie i've never seen uh and the (laughs) reason for this is uh is i remember having back in the day when we were children or at least in college, we had these things called video rental stores where you would go and you would rent videos and DVDs, or we sometimes had VHS cassettes. But anyway, um, I had a big date, like, and it was, it was progressed on in the relationship with somebody I still think of very fondly, but she'll remain nameless. And, uh, and I got a bunch of movies, like, because I didn't know which one she would like, right? And I was like, I got a bunch of movies of different genres uh, in the hopes that she would like one of the movies and we could watch one of the movies. This is like the kind of over – this is like when Belinky and I went shopping one time to make salads, and he bought, like, three things of mushrooms. And I was like, it's just for, like, four people. And he's like, I have problems with scale, is what he said. <laughs> so I have problems with scale. <laughs> I, I, like, I was so enthusiastic about renting a movie that I rented multiple movies. Um, and the two most notable movies I rented were Serendipity, uh, which is a romantic comedy with John Cusick and Kate Beckinsale, and that's all I know about it, <laughs> and, uh, and Willow, uh, the, uh, the little man that could, uh, fantasy Ron Howard <laughs> film, which is so wonderful and spectacular, and as I famously say, uh, well, not famously say, because it's not that famous, but I've said on numerous occasions on this podcast, uh, most likely, I would hope, um, we ended up watching Willow, and Willow is, like, my favorite movie to, uh, To make out to, because we had a fun time watching Willow and making out, Um, (laughs) and uh, which was like bizarre and surreal and like a profound experience, right? Like just this, like uh, sublimity and irony to it was was really overwhelming. But um, and Serendipity just sat on my on my desk, right? Because we never watched it, Um, and uh, and and there was something about the fact that I never watched Serendipity and like what it represented was the sort of aspirational quality of date movies. Like you would get a guy. Would look seek out this date movie for the express purpose of trying to like forge a closer connection with another human being, right? Like that's why you would get it. You're not going to get it because you really want to see what happens to John Cusack and Kate Beckinsale, which is an unlikely pair to begin with. But it represents this aspiration,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? And so I feel like even ha- having like not seen it, having like Schrodinger's cat still be in the box, it for me is platonic form of the means to an end romantic comedy which doesn't need to be a cynical thing like it's not just about exploitation or about hedonism but it's about like the way that we try to bring pop culture into our lives to bring us closer to each other <laughs> right and so for me like serendipity is 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 like that act more than any other movie <laughs> because it's it i didn't return to return it late too like three weeks late and i'm paying a hefty fine even though i never watched it in the hopes that i might get a chance to watch it again but it never turned around but uh but yeah, but there you go. So that's why I will say serendipity. Um, and, and, of course, they didn't really turn out to be a boffo big screen uh, couple. I don't think anybody really remembers John Cusack and Kate Beckinsale as being like, you know, sparks were flying. Um, but it looks really good on your desk. I, <laughs> so there you I mean, can go.
0: I, can I advance the, uh, the proposition that perhaps romantic comedies are a terrible genre of movie to make out to? <laughs> that, in fact, I, I'm going to go so far as to say perhaps the worst Genre of movie to make out to right Ex- except for perhaps pornography uh, because right the 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 idea of romantic comedies is that they star very attractive people who are desirable as romantic partners, and um you know i'm I'm sure for for whatever. Uh, My many virtues are that John Cusack is a much more desirable romantic partner than I am. And I just wouldn't want to have that competition on the screen uh, as I'm trying to get busy on the couch, you know, in the dorm room uh, with someone who I'm hoping will be my lady friend.
1: I mean, I don't think that's necessarily true. I mean, not all romantic comedies are where are the people are on screen or are people that are kind of competing with the people in your own life. Well, I mean, there's true. the...
0: Bill Nye yeah. has been in some romantic comedies.
1: Yeah, exactly. But also there's the idea of, like, sort of quirky every person who is the person you're supposed to identify with, the person you're supposed to see yourself in, kind of an idealized version of yourself. Well, that also does set up an ideal to which you might have difficulty aspiring. I'd say another reason romantic comedies are bad to make out to is that most of romantic comedies involve protracted, stressful situations of romantic failure, Right? Like, which are, which are uh, so that they can have the satisfying resolution. Whereas Willow offers no such thing. Although that's not true. There's actually, there is actually an extended subplot in Willow about romantic failure, which is when Mad Martigan and Sorsha are like enchanted by the brownies, right? And they fall in love with each other. And then it, and he, Well Kilmer reads all this poetry, like, makes up all this poetry to her, and then it wears off. And there's that great line where she's like, It went away. You dwell in darkness without me, and it went away. <laughs> and then they're on a horse and they're yelling at each other. But anyway, they, but it's a much smaller proportion of Willow uh, vis-a-vis the extent of the actual movie than it might be of, of, a, of a romantic comedy that's kind of anxiety-provoking.
0: John Parrish is next in, in, in our <laughs> progression. What up?
2: All right. So my favorite Kate Beckinsale movie is also a Kate Beckinsale movie that
0: I've never seen. <laughs> I think maybe we should just change the question.
2: <laughs> well, let's, let's see. Let's see how it turns out. The uh, the 1998 dramatic comedy The Last Days of Disco starring Kate Beckinsale and Chloe Sevigny, which I mostly like because it ha- it's a phenomenal title. I mean, The Last Days of Disco. Doesn't that that sounds that sounds pretty cool. It sounds that's like very, a cool Yeah, that's very interesting, right? And it's one of those it's one of those talky quirky comedy slash slice of life movies that was popular in the early to mid to almost late 90s where you know people have have these very hyper literate conversations with each other as a way of getting to know each other as opposed to actually expressing their desires about what they want in the world or if they do express their desires in very sort of uh blunt poetic ways but it's set in the you know very late seventies, early eighties, during you know the last days of disco, as it were, and Chloe Sevigny and Kate Beckinsale play these uh, up and coming. I think they're they're editors, actually, they're book editors living in Manhattan, and you know they're out frequenting the nightclub scene, but they're they're also looking for themselves because they're young adults, et cetera, and they're trying to find out you know what what their way in the world is supposed to be. And it sounds it sounds really interesting, and you know Chloe Sevigny is an act, uh, actor whose career never really took off as much as I think people wanted it to. She made a couple of of weird artistic choices at various points and is now recognizable but not exactly critically acclaimed. And Kate Beckinsale also made a number of weird artistic choices vis-a-vis the Underworld series. So
0: it it's
1: Weird it, Weird <laughs> <laughs>
0: artistic <laughs> if you, you think that we should
1: if there's a world if there's a possible universe in which there isn't a vampire analog to the matrix I don't want to live in it <laughs> but in many anyway, cases
2: so th- this movie was sort of at the at the peak of both of, of both of these actors becoming like it girls of a sort like they were they were well considered and critically acclaimed and it looks like it might be interesting to watch but I haven't yet and I don't know when I'm going to get around to it but uh but out of all the Kate Beckinsale movies, including the ones I have seen, this movie I haven't seen is my favorite.
0: Excellent. Uh, thank you, John Parrott. Jordan Stokes is with us tonight. I'm glad you're here, Jordan.
3: So am I. So am I. Um, I'm not really sure I've got a favorite Kate
0: Beckinsale movie.
3: Like, the movie I'd be most excited if it came on TV with Kate Beckinsale in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is Underworld pretty clearly, but to me, that's not a Kate Beckinsale movie, that's a Bill Nye movie that happens to be like 30, 30 minutes long and comes at the end of some other movie that I don't care about. <laughs>
1: He is so good in that movie as Victor, really the is. evil vampire. Oh, he's so great!
3: <laughs> oh. he, he changes the whole dynamic. So the movie that I wanted to talk about, um, that I that I was going to like to put on top of the Kate Beckins scale, was uh, Serendipity. <laughs> actually, and oh, I thought really? that I was safe picking that one because I was like, "There's no way that anybody in the world." Wait, that so you, you've face. seen
1: Serendipity? I have seen Serendipity. What is it and like? <laughs> is, it's like a happy
3: accident. <laughs> it's oddly relevant to a couple of things you've been talking about here, because Serendipity is a terrible, terrible romantic comedy. Um, and it's <laughs> entirely, entirely the fault of the script. And the, the, the problem is that it makes you, like, in order to get anything out of the movie, you need to buy into the fact that these two people are meant to be together. And they are both desperately unappealing people. Like, it's literally a question of Kate Beckinsale making John Cusack jump through preposterous hoops in order for her to give him a chance. And him being totally willing to do it, even though he's engaged to another woman who is not held up as, like, a horrible person, um, and, you know, even even if she was horrible, even if he had reason to not be with her, the idea that he would still want to be with Kate Beckinsale and Kate Beckinsale is saying, like, I'm going to, you know, write my phone number on a dollar and throw it into this pit of dollars. And if you happen to pull it out, then give me a call. Otherwise, I will never speak to you again. Like, <laughs> the idea that is like, well, you are pretty hot, so I'm going to try. It makes you hate him. Like, and, and I think it should make you hate him. Um, and it, and you know and and clearly clearly would make you hate her. So Serendipity is a terrible movie. But if you kind of resent rom- romantic comedies and kind of want to see one where the the contrived circumstance keeping the lovers apart is so contrived as to make you question the sanity of everyone in this fictional universe, and you know on on Valentine's Day if you're single, that might be the kind of movie you want to see. Serendipity is the movie for you.
0: Excellent. So now, now we've learned. So maybe it is a good movie to make out to.
1: <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. Or maybe you want to shut it off halfway through, which is a good thing, too. That can be a mixed blessing in those circumstances.
3: I, Although, like, uh, at what point do you, do you sort of stop the proceedings and be like, well, I might as well turn off this, this movie? You know, they say that America wastes like 20 billion gallons of gasoline on TVs that are on and not being watched every year.
1: <laughs> anything, any, anything like that is sure to ignite the night with romance that sentence is uh <laughs> is definitely charged with uh sexual and interpersonal energy
3: you know i i am off the market but ladies out there you just got a little taste of the stokes game
0: <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey sorry could you i uh, sorry could you get off i no yeah. oh god that's your elbow in my stu- yeah no sorry could you just move yeah sit up um Look, the TV over there—it's—it's it's just bothering me. No, I know it's black; it's not making noise, but it's just—I mean, I hear the high-pitched whine, and I—all I, I can think of is the uh the the you know gallons of oil sort of it's i feel like i've I've just bought like a a a, a bottle of pen's oil at the uh you know at the pet boys and we're just <laughs> pouring it down the sink right now so do you could you find is the rather this is fascinating
2: but what's your f- Favorite Kate
0: Beckinsale. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. I'll tell you my favorite Kate Beckinsale movie that I haven't seen. It's uh, it's Keanu Reeves' um, <laughs> classic, uh, Much Ado About Nothing. You haven't seen that? In, uh, no, I've seen bits of it on. Uh, I've seen I've seen bits of it on cable, and I've seen bits of it in in like high school English. But uh, I, no, I have never <laughs> actually sat down to watch through the whole. Um, the whole much ado about nothing, because to me, much ado about nothing is, uh, is a play much like Willow with a lot of fun action between Beatrice and Benedict, but then, uh, you know, a a romantic subplot that I don't care much about between Robert shot Leonard and, uh, Kate Beckinsale, um, about whether she has, you know, actually stripped another guy or not.
1: Right, right. Well, I love that movie. You know what I love about this movie is that um, Shakespeare – I mean all the Shakespeare characters are usually so smart – even when they're being stupid, they're being smart. But having Keanu Reeves in a Shakespeare movie like, raises the stakes because it's like at any point they could just stop speaking in Shakespearean language altogether and you, was just, you would not know. <laughs> so like, the continue lines that keep coming out that are beautiful are like a fresh surprise. You know, like Denzel Washington is in it. And he's related by blood to Keanu Reeves for some reason. It's great. It's totally great. Um, but yeah, no, anyway, but Robert John Leonard went to my high school, so I'm, I'm always a little bit partial to his work. Um, even if you know Bobby Sean's particular role in this part, I mean, clear you know, Claudio is a jerk face, he's a dope, yeah. and, and
3: it's, also, really, yeah. it's also the Michael Keaton one, right? No, uh,
0: yes, Mike, yeah, with yeah. Mar- Ma- uh, Michael Keaton. I think he plays Dogberry, the, that's
1: right, yeah, he's the, the clown. clown, that's role. right, that's yeah. right, yes, he yeah. does.
0: I mean, like, yeah, I look, uh, uh, Claudio is a jerk, you know, Don Pedro is a jerk, Leonardo is a jerk, uh, you know, for for a hot minute there. And, um, yeah, I don't, you know, I don't know. It doesn't, it's, it's like two good scenes between Beatrice and Benedict and, and then the rest of it just makes me angry. Have you ever, have <laughs> you ever performed it? I have. In fact, I was Friar Francis in a, uh, summer stock <laughs> in a professional summer stock production of, uh, much to do about nothing, about five minutes Well, years
1: now, ago. now I know why you 're angry is because you had to I, play I, the friar who's on like for three lines at the end of one of the scenes. Yeah, I, did, right? I like, did
0: have a good bit though when I, when I did much Ado about nothing. That it was set in, uh, It was set in like Italy um, mm-hmm. and where uh, it
1: is actually set in the script, which is a crazy innovation in Shakespearean production. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, it was set in. Um, Oh, I forget what war uh, what war it was, but some, it's somewhere in like nineteenth century Italy.
1: Oh, like, never mind.
0: <laughs> the, way, the way that much to do about nothing works is you just sort of pick your favorite war. You know what I mean, yeah. or else you go, or else you go dystopian future war. You know. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I yeah. saw
1: Uncle Phil in one and at the har- in the Harlem Renaissance, which was that was that one uh, was set There's all black cast. It was pretty good at the Long Wharf in New Haven. Cool. Uh, I was in it. I played Antonio, who also had a very small part uh who like is like a, you know, geriatric kind of guy who gets up and gives a big angry speech in like one moment of the play and then like sits down for the rest of the time. Sure. So, yep, yep, those, yep. Those are important, too.
0: That actually made Shakespeare's part because he made a specialty of playing old men. In his uh, in his company when he was an actor, but um, so uh, so there was all this like atmospheric accordion music, and because I play keyboards, I I uh, learned accordion that summer for that role, and uh, I did all the interstitial music, kind of wandering around the stage aimlessly playing the accordion, uh, you know. And while there's a there's a dance, there's like a masked ball at the beginning of the play that's consequential for the plot, and so I did uh, I did the masked ball. As well Wow uh, Kate Beckinsale That's all uh, That's all we're giving you uh, Oh We don't get to talk about Broke Down Palace <laughs> <laughs> <That's>
1: <laughs> Or the new Total Recall movie That she's going to be in Or uh, any of those other things But no, no we're done
0: No none of that That's all we're giving her On the uh, On the Overthinking Your Podcast uh, but moving on to other movies that opened this weekend, Steven Soderbergh's *Haywire* has like an 80 on Rotten Tomatoes. But apparently, the, um, there's an audience polling uh, company called CinemaScore. I think they're based out of Las Vegas, and it's something that you read in the trades. Like, so and so got an A plus Cinema Score. This and this got a you know B minus Cinema Score. Um, the like uh, apparently this weekend, uh, Red Tails got a which made twenty million dollars, which I think beat predictions. That's the uh, George Lucas financed Tuskegee Airmen uh, movie, and apparently the audiences liked it, which uh, which means I think that they marketed to the right people. Um, but uh, Steven Soderbergh's latest, which got uh, which has a great Rotten Tomatoes score, which did well with the the critics, apparently did like a D cinema score. So audiences were not happy with this movie. Now, 75% of the panel has not seen this movie, which makes it perfect for the Overthinking It uh, podcast. But John <laughs> right. Parrish has. And so let's, uh, maybe we'll throw it to John and, and say like, John, did you, uh, do you give the movie a D- or do you side with the critics who actually liked it pretty good? I'm going to split the
2: difference, actually, and say it's a pretty good movie. So I'll I'll pitch, I'll pitch it as follows: the the fight scenes and the action scenes, and there there are plenty of action set pieces that don't just involve fighting, are fun. They're well shot and they're excellently staged and they're well paced and they're and they're just very entertaining to watch. The plot is notional, and that's interesting <laughs> in in a in a Steven Soderbergh movie because I think we typically have Steven Soderbergh. Notched somewhere in our mind as you know, oh, he's a good director. His movies are are good and they're tightly plotted. And while that's usually true, it's it's not necessarily a function of him as a director, and more a function of the material. What I what I kept comparing this to in my head is the is the earlier Steven Soderbergh movie, The Limey, which is uh, late '90s. I want to say '96 or '98 or one of those years. Uh, and it has Terrence Stamp as a British convict who comes to Los Angeles to uh, find out to find out what happened to his daughter. Uh, his daughter dies mysteriously, and he wants to and he wants to find out what's uh, what went on with that. And he he goes around, and, and it's it's similar in that there's a non-linear storytelling style. Uh, we get a lot of you know we get a lot of shots of Terrence Stamp traveling somewhere, as well as you know shots of him doing the things that he's talking about, and we're and like he'll be. He'll be going somewhere with uh, uh, Louis, Louis Guzman. Uh, Louis Guzman is, is sort of a, a pal of his in the movie. And he'll be going somewhere with Louis Guzman. And the voiceover will be a conversation he's having with Louis Guzman several hours earlier where he meets him and is like, hey, I'm looking for my daughter. And then it will cut to the scene of that conversation at you know a patio table somewhere. So very similar to nonlinear storytelling style uh, with occasional bits of brutal action. Haywire is the liney, but with more action, less, uh, less narrative. So there, there is a narrative and it's told in that similarly, uh, it's told in that similarly non linear, uh, style, but it's, it's really notional. Like I, I, I think of myself as a reasonably attentive audience member and I was having a hard time understanding what exactly was going on. like, like the the plot the plot doesn't even survive casual interrogation like you you could walk up to the plot on the street and be like oh hey what time you got and it would it would start throwing things out of its pockets and staring nervously and then spitting on the sidewalk at random inappropriate times it's it, it it's kind of it kind of falls apart
0: the, i mean soderberg has a couple of uh I think that has to do with our expectations for action movies, right? Rather than our expectations for, for Soderbergh. Because he has a couple modes. And I'm thinking now of like the girlfriend experience, right? Where it's just kind of like, it's about this call girl and it's, uh, who's played by Sasha Gray. And it's, it's just kind of floating through. It's a lot of kind of aimless, pointless conversations. And a lot of just, uh, a lot of just floating through, through life. But what was the name of the one with... with George Clooney, where it was about Middle East politics, and and
1: Syriana, Syriana, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that was that wasn't Steven Soderbergh, oh, was it not? No, It's a good movie though. I like that movie. I saw it. We can talk I, about it for half well, an hour. Okay,
0: so tra- like Traffic <laughs> is a Steven Soderbergh movie, and it's and Syriana I thought was kind of in the 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 traffic mold where there's there's just a ton of plot going on, but you don't. He,
1: he, he executive produced Syriana. I'm not sure if he directed it. I see
0: uh yes. the there's a ton of plot going on but it's not really it doesn't quite surface you know what i mean it doesn't it doesn't become the iceberg uh over which you um you know which you actually see like on the screen it's just kind of there's this ominous um you know pinchonian sense of 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 great plot happening just beyond the the uh just beyond the visible surface of the of the movie so
2: traffic i i
0: suppose might be traffic i
2: suppose might be similar in that while there is a a narrative of sorts it's not it's not it's not the typical strong unified narrative like there are clearly threads that end in an arc but unresolved by the by the end of the movie so uh we're we're clearly we're clearly coming in we're clearly stepping into a stream mid-flow, if that metaphor helps me at all. I'm not sure it does. I'm gonna keep going. And uh and and I, I guess we get that similar thing to a much greater remove in uh in the girlfriend experience. And Maybe to a much greater remove in Haywire. If The Girlfriend Experience is a couple of days in the life of a uh, high-end Manhattan prostitute, then I guess Haywire is a couple of weeks in the experience of a you know private mercenary contractor Marine Corps badass. It's just that we're used to seeing that narrative, the latter narrative, uh, in the form of an action movie, which has a much tighter focus on uh, plot. And with Haywire, we don't see that.
0: Do you think private mercenaries, uh, you know, contractors, former, you know, army special forces, or you know, uh, special operations command, like uh, badasses, exist in the world the way the way that they do in movies? I just I think that nothing in the world is as cool as it is in movies. And so uh, I I assume that they can't be they can't be actually as cool because those characters are really sort of wish fulfillment characters.
2: Yeah, I mean, all of all of the former like intelligence agents and, uh, you know, uh, SOCOM, you know, field field officers and, and soldiers and such that I know are actually writers now. Like they they write about it. Uh, either for magazines or in in fic- inside delta force
1: yes. well, that's because the ones who are currently doing it you're not going to be hanging out with them because they're overseas right like
0: true yeah <laughs> i mean i think that like, or else they're <laughs> at like fort bragg you know what i mean like running 600 miles you know in two hours or something i mean do you be know
1: hanging an- out with them but then they'd have to kill you do you know any firemen who are as cool as kurt russell in backdraft you probably do yes, fire several. Oh, you do <laughs> really.
3: The, the bar yeah. you're setting is not as hard to clear as you're making it out to be.
1: I feel like you're approaching this question insincerely, Jordan. <laughs> Full appreciation of the subject matter, but no, I mean that's a good question. I mean, does do these movies? They make things seem seem a lot cooler than they should be, or? Um, is that not? Uh, no, no, no. Not the- I'm
0: not saying. I'm not saying that they they should be. I mean, I think that, that that these characters are are sort of are characters of wish fulfillment. And I think the wish, my guess is the wish is, 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 that's being fulfilled is the wish that the world were actually simpler than it is. You know yeah. what I mean? That it that it were actually just uh, possible to kind of cut through a very sort of computerized and impersonal seeming world. Uh, or a world of, like, elevators that don't come. You know what I mean? Like, it's possible to hack into the server room in Mission Impossible and control the elevators. You can bend the elevators to, to your uh, will. And, and as more and more of the world seems kind of out of control uh, from any, you know, individual schlub, uh, that, these, that these characters sort of speak to the wish that it, were, that it were less so and that you actually had more power over yeah. uh, the world that you find.
1: I mean, what I'd venture to say is that people doing these sorts of things probably exist, but that they probably don't feel like they have this power that the movies makes them look like they feel they have, right? Like they don't get to choose what they do; like they, they yeah. have to follow orders just like everybody else, and they they also have to stay online with the help desk when they're trying to get their health insurance stuff reimbursed. Like it's it's still annoying, right? They still have to figure out what they're going to eat for dinner, and, and they don't show that show that stuff in the movies. It's you know it's it's alienating and lonely work sometimes to be part of a big machine. Yeah, from.
2: from, from... From what what we do know about the actual experience of uh, special forces operators, a tremendous amount of that is going to foreign countries and waiting. Uh, A a second tremendous part of that is watching other people for unspecified lengths of time. And then there's a very little bit of running from things and occasionally shooting.
1: Right. You do get to lift a lot which is really fun. Um, yes. You get to work out <laughs> exercise. But it gets it's tough. You get to, you know, you get to that sort of stuff.
0: You get to live in like very picturesque squalor like Brad Pitt in Spy Game, you know.
1: <laughs> you don't get very good food sometimes. You it can get be rough. To, like
0: you get to shave on the roof of a building in Beirut, right? Like with uh, just a shard of like a uh, the bottom of a stainless steel pan as your uh, as your mirror. It's, you know, it's very romantic.
1: So wait, so John, um, the big news about uh, about Haywire, like one of the big things was its big star, right? It's, uh, it's mixed yes. martial arts female star. Can you go – I mean I don't know if you – in the long description whether you really went into her at all because I kind of tuned out a little bit. I apologize, <laughs> which is sort of what happens during these sort of dissociative like nonlinear narratives. People tend to tune out a little bit.
2: No, it's fine. But, I'll, I'll talk about her, yeah. So – Yes. So first off, she is uh, she's a very competent fighter. So if you've seen any of her, if you've seen any of her fight footage uh, prior to the movie, or if you've seen any of the the specials she's done, because she's done stuff, you know, being a being a female fighter of some success, she's also distinctive in that route. So she's appeared in footage for like I don't know Discovery Channel or or something similar to that. Uh, she is a competent fighter, and she portrays one in the movie. In fact, Soderbergh does a very good job making. Uh, Michael Fassbender, Ewan McGregor, uh, Channing Tatum, etc., look like they can keep up with her. So, Which of course, they
1: could not—like not even for right, a second. Not, yes.
2: not <laughs> probably not, legitimately. So that that's that's good work on on his part. Uh, there there are also a lot of action sequences that don't involve fighting that she is, very gamely participates in, like one where she uh, where she you know scales and hops a chain link fence, or where she's jumping rooftop to rooftop, or you know, trying to descend a rain gutter to the street and she slips and and falls for a bit. And, you know, that's that's stuff that as an MMA fighter she's not necessarily trained to do, but which she apparently willingly did for the movie anyway. So, you know, good for her for getting into that. Uh, There's been... There's a lot of talk in the earlier reviews about her acting ability. She's all right. I mean, I'd I'd say roughly on par with Eminem in 8 Mile in that... (laughs) in that you know the the, stuff, in, that the stuff, in that the stuff where you know both Eminem or Gina Crono are allowed to get away with being sort of under understated you know just sort of flatly delivering their observations about what life is like which you know any actor is capable of and would, pro- would probably do in a similar scene she's fine when it comes to their other sequences where she – you can kind of see that she doesn't really know how to react. Like there's one scene that Soderbergh shoots as kind of a three-way conversation between her, Michael Fassbender, and some third guy, some third, uh, some third contact of theirs. And you can you can see she doesn't really know what to do with herself in that scene. So it's, it's a little awkward to watch i I was only occasionally taken out of it, but otherwise i i thought she was i thought she was fine uh her voice is digitally altered for the movie and if you've if you've heard her speak her natural speaking voice is a sort of relaxed i i guess i don't uh i'm checking to see where she's from originally a sort of relaxed uh, southern slash valley girl tone to it like not not high enough to be what we would consider quote-unquote cute not low enough to be what we would be uh what we would consider either sultry or intimidating so my understanding is steven soderbergh deliberately digitally altered her voice to make her sound a little more uh intimidating which is fine
1: so it sounds like this yes
2: (laughs) <laughs> yes, she sounds like she sounds like Christian Bale in Batman. It's a little, it's a little awful.
1: What? What do you mean? It's all like Christian Bale in Batman. He's an excellent actor. This is shall be a disparaging comment. She sounds like Harvey Fierstein. Hi, I thought I
0: heard my name.
1: I don't even know if anyone likes this joke anymore. We're just, we're I, don't kick anyone, I don't know if anyone
2: liked it to begin with. Like when? When was that an issue? True. 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 Uh,
1: that's cool so so they did do that that's 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 a little weird is and it's part does it feel like it's part of the kind of dissociative nature of what's going on in the movie as the, things are kind of in collage with one another or does it like are they is it actually attempting to seem like that's what her real voice is like is it like trying to be representational or is it obviously fake
2: it's try. it's trying to be representational and it's it's skillfully done enough that you kind of have to look for it to notice it such that if i if i hadn't known that going in and I and, you know, I wasn't specifically paying attention for differences in that there. There might be like one scene where I thought, oh, OK, they they redub this in post. I wouldn't think, oh, OK, this isn't how she naturally talks. I mean, to right. be fair, I had n- I'd never watched or I'd never watched any of these interviews uh, with her. All I had seen of her was fight footage. And in those fights, she does most of her talking with her with her elbows.
3: Sure. <laughs> I, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm speculating here, but I do know that this is a movie that was supposed to come out like several months ago, maybe a year ago, something like that, um, yes. which makes me believe that probably what Soderbergh originally intended was to have it just be clearly Gina Carano's voice. And when you're watching the movie, you're supposed to be thinking, "Oh, hey, there's Gina Carano, like dressed up like a spy for some reason." Um, and th- th- this did not test well with audiences. And the studio read him the riot act. And he's like, "Okay, we will alter her voice so that she sounds more like a normal actor would sound like." I have no idea if that's true, but that, that's sort of the narrative that I put it's, together.
2: It's plausible in that, the, um, and this is according to Wikipedia. The movie was shot in, uh, in in over two months in 2010, from like February through March of 2010. And it was released in January of 2012. And January is typically the month that studios put things they don't care about. So, I mean, that that give the, the lead time and the release date sort of give the indication that they weren't expecting much of this.
1: And it's funny, if, if, if in The Dark Knight Rises they end up redubbing Bane's voice out of because of negative audience reaction to him being unintelligible in previews and such, that could, that could be – we just need a rule of three there for the year, and that could be one of the big trends, right? And we can all talk about it. We can have a whole podcast about it once we go through it. And it could sound like this all the time because everybody what's, is being altered. Can
3: I say what's hilarious about the Bane voice thing is that um, – <laughs> Like spoiler alert, kind of, but not really. Bane Bane kills Batman, right? Like that's the the only reason that that character is something that people know about.
1: No, no, Bane um, in, in the comic books he breaks Batman's back. Oh, right, and, sure. And all right. Batman should die, but he manages to rehabilitate through like ridiculous medicine.
3: Yes, but not for a while. There's there's a yeah. long time when they were like, oh, we're going to phase Bruce Wayne out. Um, yeah. He's just going to be like the guy behind the guy. We'll have a new Batman, and you know everyone was like, "Sure, you will." But they they made it seem sincere. So they introduced Bane to be like, "This is the one that finally does Bruce Wayne in, like the fight he couldn't win." Um, so now you have him in this third movie, and Bane is way more cartoonishly dark than the villains that Batman typically fights, right? You put him in a room with Mr. Freeze and there's been a a change in the aesthetic direction of comics between the introduction of the one character and the other. And uh, the Christopher Nolan Batman movies are like darker and grittier than the Batman franchise once was. And then you've got the muffled Bane voice is basically the Christian Dale Batman voice. So he's kind of saying that like what destroys Batman is this franchise that I've created. Yeah.
1: (laughs) It all comes full circle, and the bat snake eats its own bat tail as it were well that's cool so so okay, so should people see haywire just let's give let's give people life unsolicited guidance for their lives like let's okay. let <laughs> i
2: will i will give you uh so my my review is uh, worth seeing just for, just for the technique. Cause I think Soderbergh is an interesting enough director that he's worth watching just to, just to see what he does. Well, if you're interested in the craft of films, this is one worth seeing. So oh. yes. Uh, if you're interested in action movies that are kind of interesting, Maybe put it on the Netflix queue. Maybe rent it. Maybe you know get it if it's available on like on demand or whatever the digital equivalent is. Don't necessarily run to the theaters to see it. Sorry, Steven Soderbergh, uh, but yeah, I mean it's it's worth checking out. There's some fun fight scenes. It's it's light. It's not. It won't offend your intelligence, and you might forget a good bit of it a couple days later. But eh, whatever. <laughs> All right. <laughs> That is the it's that tough. is the, that is the strongest praise I can offer for it. And I I went in really really wanting to like the movie, and I like I liked some stuff that happened in it. But I I can't be like yes, this is the next generation of action flicks because it's <laughs> it's narratively kind of a mess.
1: So could you make out to it though? Like would you want to make out to this movie?
2: Ah uh, hmm. I I'm I'm gonna say yes because there are I mean. Gina Carano and Channing Tatum do have some sexy times in the movie. So that's fun. And there are points where there are points where the, the action kind of drifts off in a, in a sort of web of narrative that you can, that you might lose interest if you're watching it in a dim room with an attractive member of the desired sex and sort of turn to them and nuzzle their neck. And then one thing leads to another. And then, you know, one of you fumbles for the remote to mute it when when, uh, when the next fight scene comes back on. The sound of elbows smacking into the backs of skulls is less appealing.
3: It's definitely it's a good know. movie to make out, to if you have a persistent sexual fantasy about Michael Douglas getting put in a flying arm bar.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't? That's something that we all can share, I think. That's something we all have in common. <laughs> oh, man.
0: Well, maybe we push on uh, from here to the next thing, which is this. Neil Young has uh, Neil Young has come out strongly. Uh, against mp3s no not against piracy no not against the quality of music today against uh, according to an M- mtv.com interview with him uh against the sound quality of mp3s claiming that mp3s contain only five percent of the information that you get on a cd for example uh th- that I'd, I'd point out to uh mr young that uh that depends on the the you know settings with which the mp3 was encoded for example we encode the overthinking it podcast as a 64 kilobit uh, mono mp3 which is pretty much as crappy as you can do it and still uh you know still actually have a file that sounds like recognizable human voices and we do that because you download a lot of these over the course of a year and we don't want to uh you know increase your bandwidth bill or ours more than we absolutely have to so-
1: and also if you were to hear the true tones of john parich's deep sonorous voice it- could perhaps shatter several of the smaller bones in your body. The
0: dulcet tones of John Parrish's <laughs> chocolatey baritone. Uh, <laughs> it actually sounds something like <laughs> to dream the impossible
1: dream. Stay on target. Stay on target. So, what did Neil Young say? <laughs>
0: uh, Neil uh, Neil Young says that uh, we have worse um, worse sound quality now uh, because everything are these uh, these small. Uh, Inco- you know, very badly encoded digital files Or at least very highly compressed digital files um, that, uh, that that we have worse sound quality now Than when he started off in music Now, I don't know if this is something That we want to talk about But Pete, you've been dealing with A lot of MP3s recently, haven't
1: you? <laughs> well, that's true um, So I... As overthinkers probably know, I have a very underdeveloped taste in uh, per, uh, contemporary music. I tend to come across music in, on treadmills and in dance places and, and gyms and stuff and not really listen to it much. But I've got an iPod now, and I'm trying to build out uh, playlists and listen to more music. And so I went through this weekend and redid a bunch of my, my playlists. And I, My challenge first was to make a playlist that is a subset of the music that I have uh, that is uh, work music for working out. Right for for working out, right, and I, so, um, and also to incorporate some new music that I'm trying to get into and learn about. Um, I had previously only had. Mostly Christmas music on my on my iTunes account. So originally my workout <laughs> list was only the non Christmas music, but that led to weird situations where you would be trying to put up like you know a uh, you know a seventy pound dumbbell, and all of a sudden Merrily Lee roll along would kick in, you know, from like the original cast recording and like whatever nineteen seventy six or whatever it came out, um, and that would be a little bit nonplussed. I actually had a friend who found my iPod when I left at a bar, took it running with her, and was like, "This is weird. Um, <laughs> why is this music on here?" It's like Wu-Tang Clan into, like, you know, jazz acapella. But, um, <laughs> so I went through, and I, and I found out that I actually wanted two workout mixes, one for lifting, one for running, and I split them. And then I deleted songs from each of them that didn't make sense. And, uh, and then I added another list for things that I, I want to listen to, right? And I'm trying to pare down and keep the, the flow manageable on my, on my iPod, and uh, the kinds of music you would listen to while lifting and the kind of music you would listen to running are very different. Now, to talk about neil young i mean i guess what he's talking about would only really affect that third playlist that i made which was the playlist of new music that i'm trying to listen to and right now it's a bunch of like folk influenced rock i'm trying to listen to some fleet foxes and the the head and the heart uh, from seattle which i kind of like and uh, some sufjan stevens and stuff like that and uh and that stuff I would I guess I might care if the quality isn't high enough, but when I'm listening to, you know, ludicrous and I'm like, you know, doing Smith Machine squats because the squat rack is full of someone doing curls, like I don't really care about sound quality. Right I, I want it to be recognizable. I want it, the syntactic information of the song and its kind of emotive and sentimental quality to be communicated. um you know what I mean, and also isn't it possible to have a, a file that has less information but doesn't actually provide less auditory information like can't you just isn't that what file compression is all about um cloud, cloud
0: compression is that when you like take water vapor and i don't know
1: no no file compression i said file compression
0: sorry i thought you said cloud compression
1: no everything happens in the cloud now the cloud is magical pretend that it's not computers that a corporation owns and it's some sort of vaporous mist that hangs over the earth and like (laughs) it's shaped like a rabbit yeah exactly
3: Um. one of the one of the things about the whole audiophile debate is that while it's true that um you know you can get so much audio information onto a cd you can't get all of it into your ears your ears are pretty lo-fi as things go um I mean, they're, they're tremendously sophisticated structures. They pick up an amazing amount of information. But when you talk about the complete uh, sound wave that's produced by the instrument or by the human voice, your ears chop a lot of that out. And especially when you get to the whole analog-digital debate, when you get right down to it, your, uh, your whole nervous system is digital, because nerves fire they
2: don't. So it will get quantized when you break it down to, to brass tacks yeah so there i mean so there's less of an argument to be made as we 're quickly discovering for neil young 's point that the recording medium is is lossy or is lossy in such a way that hurts the the listening experience, but I have read other arguments so so to engage with an argument that Neil Young should have made yeah. uh, that, that the production experience is is getting a little is, is being harmed by the digital age i 'm referring in this case to uh Jaron Lanier's book You Are Not a Gadget a manifesto which came out uh I think a uh, which came out uh, just over 2 years ago at this point uh, January 2010 is is what is what Amazon is telling me and it's it's really just a a detailed look about the history of various programming decisions and how they've influenced the way that we interact with the web and with technology and with apps and with things like that and one of the and one of the points he makes or rather, I hope this is Lanier i read i think it it 's Lanier 's book. I read it. and one of the points he makes is uh, is about the MIDI recording format or just di- or just digital digital production in general so the the MIDI format is you know what we would recognize initially from things like you know eight bit Nintendo soundtracks and also and is also incorporated to a certain extent in a lot of other more modern productions as well and The distinction he draws is that uh, you know a a sound produced by an orchestra or just by the human voice has a tremendous amount of variability to it. Like even if I'm producing like a perfect C, there's that certain amount of quavering and that fuzziness around the edges and I'm I'm reaching C- the limit. Exactly and i'm re- i'm reaching the limits of my ability to talk technically about music but you guys know what i mean whereas if i produce that same note with a a midi keyboard for instance i'm just i'm just hitting a button and there's a digital you know zero or one being fired there the c is either on or it's off so there's no there's no Uh, fuzziness around the edges as it were and Lanier's point is that a lot of what we consider things like the warmth of a note or the tone of a note or the color of a note is influenced by that that rough imperfection at the edges and that's not to say that MIDI is necessarily bad or inferior but it's it's something we don't consider when, or it's something we don't always consider when we decide you know whether to produce sounds using using MIDI technology or using using other means available and Lanier's point is just that these are things that we should consider these are choices we should make consciously, not merely because it's the accepted industry standard
0: sure the, the... And, and it's the culprit is not, is not really MIDI per se, because MIDI is just a language for like saying, you know, this note should start now and it should be this pitch. The the culprit that you're talking about is is synthesis, right? Um, that is to say, the, yes, I guess technically yes. Yeah, the way the uh, the the that the way the sounds are made uh, are so reductive um, compared with. With what? With, with sort of natural, natural instruments making sounds. I mean, but natural instruments making sounds are sort of physical machines that have parameters. And, like, the, para- you know, the parameters are getting better. It's actually much, uh, you know, uh, like physically modeled, physically modeled synthesis rather than synthesis that's based on, um, you know, manipulating sine waves or, or, or something, something like that. I, I actually thought you were going to go into a different direction with that, but I want to hear what Jordan has to say.
3: I was going to say that, uh, that I think that he's exactly right. And I don't think you can totally let MIDI off the hook because I've, I've worked with MIDI some. And um, one of the standard ways to represent it is as kind of a grid where you can uh, check a box to have a note fall at that point. And um, that aspect of how it moves through time and how uh, precise that is, is uh, a feature of MIDI that is not real helpful if you want to have music that sounds good. Um, that hasn't gone away for some reason. Sure, and I can I can imagine people getting locked into it. Um, not to be and- so
0: nitpicky, but it's like that's that's a failing of whatever interface you're using, whatever software or hardware what, a hardware interface you're using, and not you know not necessarily the the it's like it's like blaming the language English for the things that people. You know, for the things that people say. It's, it's, uh.
3: Oh, yeah, it is. I am. Wait, 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 I, would go, I would go further back actually and say that this is really a flaw of Western classical notation, uh. Which, you know, you have a measure of four four, there are four quarter notes in that measure, um. Rather than four notes which are each of slightly different values from each other. You know, I, I teach people music for a living, and one of the things that you see in beginning composers time and time again is the technology of how you write music down gets away from them. And they write pieces that are all four-coordinates of the bar, rather than uh, doing anything else more interesting from the rhythm, because it's sort of like, all right, well, I've written three, there's room for a
0: fourth. So in, college, in college, when the notation programs like um, Finale and Sibelius and, and whatnot were just getting good, I used Finale. I wish I had learned Sibelius at the time, but um, I was in an electronic music class where the teacher posited that he could he could guess whether a given score had been just composed in the Finale window rather than composed yeah. composed on an instrument and then you know typeset uh, typeset in Finale. So yeah, I mean, so I I think this is an issue, right? This is an issue of tools. The the lucky thing about writing down writing down music. Uh, uh, that is to be performed by humans. Is that you know the the humans will introduce the uncertainty into it. And I actually in my first sequencer that I that I had in like the mid in the mid nineties that I did a lot of theater music uh, in. And I you know I solved the problem of. of Quantization by actually just playing I, You know I would play it and it would record It would record my performance But then it would reproduce my Performance exactly you know what I mean And not with, uh, with, none, of the, with none of the What the innate variability That, that you get with humans Which is what John's original Point was uh, In the first place
3: I will say technology has gotten a lot better at faking that. Like even on the the sort of the horrible MIDI programs I've got, there's a a button you can press that says randomize. What that means is not just put in random notes, but take whatever you've got and kind of hash it up a little bit so that some of the attacks are a little early, some are a little late, the pitch wavers and so on. Um, And they they get closer and closer to something that sounds wrong enough to be human without being so wrong (laughs) as to be bad. (laughs)
0: <laughs> right mm-hmm. wrong yeah exactly so the idea um so i i thought john was going to go a different direction in in the sense that like uh in a lot of pop music Uh, production now it's very heavily compressed and by compressed i don't mean file compression i mean sound compression um the, the the sound compression is that is where you take the innate sort of variability of a of a waveform uh you know some of it is some of it is high some of it is low some of it is soft and you sort of squeeze and stretch the whole thing so that it's um uh you know, so that the highs are are smushed down and the lows are pulled up, uh, so that things get to be more or less a uniform a uniform volume. And if you think of, I mean, if you think of the kind of undifferentiated throb of certain kinds of dance music, like that, you know, that's what. That's what compression does, except you know, except for that like booming bass. The idea that there's just this band of sound. And in fact, if you have a uh, uh, you know a, a more technical audio program like Audacity or something, uh, sorry, apparently the Cylons are taking over the podcast. Um, <laughs> they have a plan, which means they have one up on us. <laughs> uh, if you take. Um, uh, you know, uh, like a pop file, a pop music file, and open it up in Audacity. Um, what you are going to uh, see, more or less, rather than the the peaks and valleys that you would imagine in in you know regular spoken word or music or something like that, you're going to see just this band of a waveform of a kind of uniform uh, waveform stretching across, uh, you know, just under zero decibels. Um. Uh, just under zero decibels, uh, you know, going the whole way across. And the effect of this is that it, um, uh, it, like, it apparently drives you crazy, right? That, like, listening to this and, and the way that kind of talk radio, which is also heavily compressed, I guess, can, can drive you crazy. Um, what do you
1: mean by drive you crazy? Like, it literally makes you insane? Yeah, People it, it are all has insane? Like,
0: it has cognitive or neurological effects that are, you know, detrimental to your equanimity. You know what I mean? That's I. I just replaced uh, short Germanic words with a lot of long Latin words. That that's what I was looking for. So I appreciate it. That was my attempt at, at, uh, at definition. That listening to the to the kind of production that we listen to actually sort of um, can have you know bad effects on your your mood, uh, your sanity. You know all all of uh, all of these things.
3: Take take that with a grain of salt, though, because people have been saying that about these kids' music these days for literally thousands of years. Um, so, th- I mean, whether they're measuring what they think they're measuring is a question that I would really like to ask.
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, and I don't know. I don't know how the experiments have been have been done, whether it's been with music or with voices or things like this. I I know that we compress and limit the hell out of these, uh, (laughs) these podcasts. Um, but I listen to podcasts all the time and I hate it. I hate it when one person's voice is really, really quiet and everyone, someone else's voice is booming and I, you know, and I'm constantly fiddling with the, uh, the, uh, the volume on my iPhone, like rather, what are you talking about? Yeah. And actually that shout (laughs) Uh, is is going to seem is going to seem much more domesticated by the time uh, you know by the time all the compression is done by Level and GarageBand and, and all the things that I use. And
2: Rather, it, is is that an effect of of the sound compression or is that an effect of you're just constant emotional views of me? <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it does make sense the sound compression.
0: It's like we're just pouring a gallon of Pennzoil down the the thing. I, I was wondering if the 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 remote is under you or under me. Maybe we could just turn the TV off.
3: <laughs> um, but yeah, it does make sense, though, right? If you put yourself in Ludacris's shoes, right?
1: Like he sold, which it I'd love to on... do because they're awesome shoes. Yeah, I bet yeah. Air Force Ones, probably.
3: He's talked about them at length, right? Yeah. But. You know, he sold a bunch of songs, but he would still like to sell more songs. And ideally, he would like to sell his his song not only to, like, the DJ or the giant hip-hop fan who's going to sit down in, like, a dark room with their Bose speakers all equidistantly spaced and listen to every little production decision. He also wants to sell a copy of the song to Pete, who's going to listen to it while he does, you know, power squats in the gym or whatever. There's if no you compress thing as a power it,
1: squat, but anyway. Yeah. <laughs>
3: <laughs> if you compress the hell out of it and, uh, uh, <laughs> and, and, and limit it and do all that stuff, then it will sound well on the the speakers that Pete has while he's doing power squats. At the gym.
1: <laughs> <laughs> there probably is something called a power squat, and I'm going to get well actually done at hardcore by somebody who does uh, well, power. Yeah.
3: And and the person who has good speakers will think that maybe what you're doing is a little bit less interesting than it could be, but you'll be able to sell both copies of the song. So that is you know it's it's less that uh, the production technology itself makes for crappy sounding recordings, but that we do end up making recordings that sound about as well as they could
0: on the crappiest speakers with the crappiest compression. In other words, we're mixing to the lowest common denominator. Yes. Or we're mastering. And there is, there, is is such a thing. <laughs> there is such a
1: thing as the power squat. I've never done it. <laughs> and now I feel like an idiot. So there you go. You can learn about it on tnation.com <laughs> where you can watch power squats. Um, no, but
3: then yeah. I, was, I was still wrong because I said that you specifically were doing the power squats in, in this. Well, I think uh, that
1: Ludacris wants, wants to make music that I would want to listen to while doing power squats because Ludacris wants to make the music of the future. Right, not the music of the present. I don't even know. Maybe
3: I have to. Do maybe, a power ludicrous, squat now. maybe ludicrous. Maybe Ludacris thinks that you can like have a more balanced workout. He's trying to make <laughs> songs. You know, that, that's that's the message. That's what he's actually saying. When he goes stand up, he's describing <laughs> the, the motion of a power squat to you. Roll
1: out your legs.
0: You know, like out. <laughs> <laughs> don't let your knees get in front of your toes. Exactly. Move. <laughs> Get out the way. (laughs) Get
1: out the way. Oh, man. Uh,
0: Well, uh, if you want to get out the way of this podcast, we're going to give you the opportunity. (laughs) 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 Because I think we're going to wrap now. Uh, If you want to join the conversation, it's uh, 203-285-6401. You can leave a comment on the show notes. Uh, We didn't even talk about it being the fourth anniversary of uh, Overthinking It. But thank you, everybody, for uh, listening and reading for four years of Overthinking It however long you've been reading we're just as grateful uh like um right like uh like god in the parable of the the worker and the wages you know we're just as grateful for the reader who started reading yesterday as we are who for the reader who stuck with us uh for, well, we're, we are we are grateful for both. Uh, anyway, God, I'm sticking my foot in my mouth, huh? Uh, email us to podcast at overthinkingit.com or leave a comment on the, the show notes on the newly redesigned overthinkingit.com, the site where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, prob- it probably doesn't deserve.
3: actually have readers who have been there for the entire four years.
1: I I hope, like Kate Beckinsale, we have people who were there for the first two years, and then the third year was just straight to DVD, and then the fourth year they came back and they went to the theaters, and then they're (laughs) back for the main event.
0: That's a very—I mean—that's a very interesting question, right? Like, how long have people been reading "Overthinking It"? And I think um, uh, it's—I think it was just us in the early days. I mean, maybe our significant others who were part of the first like 20 hits on uh, January 22nd, 2008, on "Overthinking It." Uh, the, you know, actually 18 of those were probably me testing things on the, you know, the newly launched site. But
2: but we've been around for roughly long enough that I think we're reaching the point where we need, we need some new supervillain to come in and break our backs. And then we have a new generation come in and start overthinking things for us. And we're just sort of like an, like an elder statesman, except the editors aren't going to go for that. So we're going to have to like regain our overthinking powers through like training in these Far East monasteries and then... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then reclaim our title from the from the newer generation who has usurped it and sort of run Gotham into the ground.
0: Did somebody call for a supervillain? <laughs> <laughs>